Morning, everybody. We are continuing to make our way through the quirky, weird book of Ecclesiastes, this book of alternative wisdom that's found in the Old Testament portion of the Scripture. And today, you'll see what it's all about. It's all about the pursuit of happiness and dying like a dog, which sounds really depressing, but you'll understand it's actually not. Let's start with the pursuit of happiness. This is just one verse out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And the writer, remember the mystery writer known as the teacher, says this, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Now this verse is obviously about something near and dear to all of our hearts. It's about our personal happiness. And I want to unpack this verse um, by uh, focusing on two things. First of all, the enemies of our happiness. And second of all, entryways into happiness. Let's look at the enemies of happiness. There are so many things that want to squelch the joy and excitement that we should naturally have about being alive on this planet. There are too many for me to mention here, so I just want to go over the few of the biggies that you can be aware of. First one is this, trying to be perfect. So many people think, if I could just be super mom or super dad or super spouse or super student or super pastor or super Christian, then I would be happy. I got to tell you this, okay? If you think you have to perform perfectly in every circumstance and situation of your life, that will not lead you to happiness. It will lead you to shame and guilt and quite a few emotional breakdowns in the journey of your life, okay? Accepting your limitations, accepting your shortcomings, that's where happiness is found. A few years ago, many of you have seen this video, but I'm going to play it again because I watched it again this week. There on the Ellen DeGeneres show, she's a talk show host during the daytime and a comedian, and she does this thing where she just receives call-ins from the audience that's listening out there, and she got called in on this one particular time from a lady named Gladys Hardy. Do some of you remember her? If you do, you're smiling right now, okay? Just listen to the first part of the interview she has with Gladys Hardy. Can we make sure the sound is on for this and cue it up? Okay. Pretty loud. Okay, and you can actually cut it right there. I don't know if you could hear it, but the first thing she said is, um, if you're selling something, I'm not interested. That's how she answered the phone. And then she said, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. And I, it caught me when I heard it for the first time. I go, oh my gosh, that's so great. Because that was her way of admitting to the whole world, even Ellen, she's saying, look, I'm not a saint. I'm far less than perfect. And her honesty and her vulnerability made all of us happy throughout the whole nation, okay? Ours will do the same. When we admit our limitations, when we admit our imperfections, when we admit that we're less than a saint, a perfect saint, it'll make other people happy because they'll go, Oh, you too, thankfully, okay? And they don't feel so alone in their imperfection. But admitting our imperfections also will make us happy because it takes the pressure off. It allows us to be a human instead of a robot and to depend on God's mercy and grace instead of our own performance, okay? That leads to happiness. So first of all, forget about being perfect. Number two, coveting. That's the second enemy, a big enemy to happiness. In the book of Exodus, we find a famous section of scripture called the Ten Commandments. 
which Charlton Heston has made famous because that movie's played every single year at Easter time, okay? And the Ten Commandments were actually written, you wouldn't know this probably, in the form of what's called a ketubah. And a ketubah is a Hebrew wedding contract. So really they shouldn't be known as the Ten Commandments. They should be known as maybe something like the Ten they're the tender commandments or the ten teachings because they're not a set of harsh rules and regulations that were handed to people to be a burden in their life to suck all the joy and fun out of their life. No, there are ten teachings that were given to us as a gift because if we follow them, we'll be able to better relate to God and we'll have the rich and full life that he wants us to have. And the tenth teaching is about coveting, which is this fancy word that just means wanting what somebody else has. And there's an ancient commentary about this 10th teaching. It says, look, the 10th teaching, the 10th commandment is not a commandment at all. It's a reward. And the teaching goes like this. If you follow the first nine commandments, then you'll have no problem with the 10th one. If you follow the first nine, of course you won't covet. Of course you won't be envious of someone else's life because you'll be so grateful for your own life. And I love that. I love that. Being happy means walking in the flow of God's desires and dreams for your life and being so grateful and content for your own life that you aren't envious of what someone else has. And that leads to happiness. And thirdly, and this is a big enemy, this is a surprising one, is thinking that you have to be happy all the time. So oddly enough, one of the biggest enemies to happiness is actually Happiness, as odd as that sounds, because if you put too much of a priority on happiness, if you think that's the only emotion and experience you're allowed to have in your life, you'll actually rob yourself of happiness. Happiness comes when we embrace the less than pleasant emotions and experiences of our lives. Think of your life like a great television series, a real epic one, like Friends or MASH, to date myself a little bit, stuff like that, okay? Now, in all good television series, there are funny and fun and heartwarming episodes that just bring a smile to your face, and that's great. But there are also sad episodes. Someone dies, okay? Or there's a, there's a breakup or a broken dream. There are also angry episodes when a betrayal happens or a crime is committed, things like that, okay? Now, when you think about that in a good television series, characters go through hardships, but that's a good thing because if they didn't go through hardships, if they were just happy, happy, happy all the time, there would be no depth to their life. Now, put a comma there for a second, okay? You're thinking about your life as a TV episode. Romans chapter 8 also says this. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. All things. Notice that phrase. Not some things. All things. So, I want you to know, I do not believe for one second that God causes awful things to happen in our life. He doesn't cause natural disasters and calamities and awful trouble in our life. He doesn't do that. But he can quite miraculously use the trauma and the trouble and the heartache, the bad episodes, so to speak, in our life as the tools that he uses to shape us into more beautiful and compassionate people. That's why the most loving people you ever meet, think of the most loving person you know on the planet right now. The most loving people you'll ever meet are also the ones who have suffered greatly because God has used those bad episodes in their life to soften them and fill them with compassion. So let me wrap it all up. So when we stop trying to be happy all the time, 
we actually free ourselves up to be happy because we see that all of the episodes, the happy ones, the sad ones, the angry ones, the difficult ones, are actually good episodes when they're in the hands of God. And knowing that makes you happy. I hope that made sense. That's a little bit confusing. I hope it made sense. But now let's talk about our entryway into happiness. There are so many things in life that can bring us a sense of joy and happiness. Things like a good night's sleep, which most of you young parents aren't getting right now, or enjoying the simple things in life. The other day, I just made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Have you forgotten how good those are? And you have to get the right ratio, right? One serving peanut butter, three servings jelly. Okay, that's how it goes. But it's so good. And then there's things like puppies and babies and probably should have got the order different on that. Okay, babies and puppies, all right? And here is a biggie, community. It makes you so happy. This faith community makes me so happy. It makes me so happy to know I'm not on this journey alone. I'm not on this journey we call life and faith alone. The other night on Monday, I met with a group of people from this church. And and be honest with you, Jessica and I have been going through a little difficult season. Not a little. It's a suck fest, okay? The last month and a half. It's been awful in my life. I'm not going to lie to you. And we gathered some people and we told them. We were just honest about it. And the acceptance we felt, the inclusion we felt, the embraces we received, it healed us. It made me so happy. I was so happy for the rest of the week, okay, until some other suck fests occurred. But it got me through the week, all right? And then last but not least, there's the item that we read in this verse. This is an entryway into happiness, doing good. We are so happy. We're wired to be happy when we decide to step out of our small little circles of self-interest and selfishness and get out there in the world and actually do good for other people. It makes you so happy. It makes them happy, but it also makes us so happy. There's a magazine, super expensive. It's $20 per magazine, but it's totally worth it. You can order it online. It's called FOR, just the word, F-O-R, because the whole magazine is about people doing good for other people. Such a great concept. It's got great stories, including the one, I want to show you a picture of a guy named Antonio Bosco. Can we put his picture up? He's quite elderly. You'll notice he's at a funeral. And the reason this is a story of doing good is because um, he and his wife, they were married forever and ever, and they outlived almost all of their friends, had no friends living in the, in the city that they were living in, and all of their family lived too far away to make it to the funeral, didn't have the means to get there. Well, word got out about this, and his whole community said, not on our watch. And 3,000 people showed up at his wife's funeral for him. Are you kidding me? That's what our lives should be like. We should be like people looking for opportunities to do good. That's what our lives should be like. And if you can't think of anything good to do for another person, just pray. Just go, God, what is something I can do that's good for another person? And God has mad skills on how to show you, to open doors and give you opportunities like that. But if your mind's still blank, I'm going to give you a few right now, okay? So just make a mental note of this. One of the things you can do, cuddle babies. I kid you not, my son works at Riverbend Hospital in the ICU. I hope you never meet him at work, okay? And there's a program there about cuddling babies, especially babies that are born in the neonatal unit. It's so popular, though, you have to get on the waiting list to do this. But some babies are born with no one to give them physical affection. So these volunteers go in there, and they're just giving babies, and they just hold them for an hour. 
<laughs> I don't know why that just sounds so cool to me, okay? It just, you just hold them and provide physical attention and affection for them. There's another program, again, waiting list right now, called No One Dies Alone. Did you know we have these programs at hospital? No One Dies Alone. There are people that are terminally ill that are in their last days and they're at the hospital. They're dying. They know they're dying and they don't have anybody there with them. So volunteers come in and sit with them and hold their hand and read them stories, even sing over them. And and they're just with them as they take their last breath. Do that. That's a good thing to do for somebody else. And then there's the dining room. Three blocks that way on Lawrence Street, like 8th and Lawrence or Broadway and Lawrence, something like that. But three blocks that way, trust me. There's Food for Lane County's dining room. They feed hundreds of people on a daily basis, breakfast and lunch. They're always in need of volunteers, and they're the funnest people. Funnest, is that a word? They're super fun They're super fun people, okay? They're so fun to volunteer with. My family's done it. Sign up and do that. And then there's people like my wife and other teachers. My wife has 40 kids in her science class sometimes, and the average in Eugene is 35 to 40. If you volunteer even one day a week, a teacher will love you forever and ever, okay? They need help. Then there's our own kids' class. I never beg for leaders in here. I probably should, though. Our little mini saints in there just need bodies in there just to love on them and play with them and be with them. You don't have to be an expert. You just literally have to be breathing and not an axe murderer. Okay, you've got to pass a background check, okay? So the bar's pretty low, but you can do good for them. And then we have a thing coming up, oh, this fall, later on this fall, called Burrito Fridays. It's in, in cahoots with St. Vincent de Paul's 15th night program that gets kids off the street before they enter into a cycle of homelessness. And it's really hard for kids to find free food around here um, on Fridays for some reason. I don't know all the logistics. So um, Tana Nelson, who goes to our church, and, and a group of people from St. Vincent de Paul organize what's called Burrito Fridays, and we make 40 to 60 burritos, and we throw a dinner party for these kids. And we're even going to try to host it at our space. So when I give you information on that, sign up for that. You don't have to cook the burritos. You can just wrap them. If you can't roll a burrito, you've got... It's not hard, Okay. <laughs> It's literally, (laughs) you just roll it. I mean, they need people literally to make the burritos and roll the burritos, okay? So it makes people happy when we do good for them. It also makes us happy because the goodness we do for other people will echo into eternity. I'm sounding all philosophical here, but it's true. The acts of kindness and goodness that you do for another human being will bring them healing and wholeness. And that healing and wholeness will stay with them as part of their experience into forever. How cool is that? You're doing something that will echo into eternity. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, this mystery writer, he was so wise to connect happiness and doing good because he knew good and well they go together. They go together. Now let's move on to the second point. Dying like your dog, and I apologize to all of you that have lost your pets this year, but this is actually in the Bible. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals, like your dog. The same fate waits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. And remember that meaningless is the word havel. It doesn't mean meaningless. It means vapor. Everything is so short. Our lives are so short. Everybody dies, including your dog. Now, last week, 
I brought up the fact, I brought up dogs, because I told you guys that some of you talk to your dogs, okay? Not in one-word commands, just like sit and beg and roll over and stuff. I guess that's two words, okay? It's things like that, but like whole sentences and conversations. And I got some very funny emails from you about that. It was great. But I'm mentioning dogs again because the teacher informs us that we're similar to our dogs, Probably not only in our looks. Have you noticed people start to look like their dogs in older age? It's the weirdest thing, okay? But we're also like our dogs because our dogs are going to die, and so are we. That's what the teacher says. So thank you, teacher, for that really cheerful chunk of the Bible. I don't know if any of you, have any of you just raise your hand? I'm so curious. Did any of you ever watch the TV series called Six Feet Under? Did you ever watch that? None of you? Okay, one or two of you? I know why. Okay, because it's not great. Okay, I have to say it's not great. But if you never watch Six Feet Under, every episode, virtually every episode starts with somebody dying. So you quickly realize as you're watching this that the main character isn't the actors. The main character in the show is actually death. And it's the same with the book of Ecclesiastes. If you sit down and read it from start to finish sometime, which you should, it's a great experience, you quickly realize that death is playing a starring role in this book. And at first that, we can assume, oh, that's so morose and depressing, okay? It's why many people don't look at the book. And not only that, but the teacher seems to have no bedside manner at all when approaching this difficult topic of death. He just blurts it out. Hey, your dog's going to die and so are you. He just blurts it out. And it reminded me of one of my favorite authors is Walter Wangerin, and he's written so many books, and they're just brilliant. And his best book in my mind is called Letters from the Land of Cancer. Sounds depressing. It's not. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he wrote a book about his experience on it. And one of the first things he writes about was his first visit to the specialist. And this is what the doctor said to him. I'm going to put it up on the screen. You're not going to believe this. This kind of cancer doesn't go away. It will kill you. Sooner or later, it will be the cause of your death, so long as other causes don't beg to go first. That's what the doctor told him. Like, you're going to die from this disease unless you like, get hit by a bus or something, okay? And you think about that, and you think about the writer of Ecclesiastes, and go, oh, so blunt. But before we get mad at the writer of Ecclesiastes for being so blunt, we've got to realize something. His bluntness, his honesty is a gift because it gets us to face our own mortality. And we hide from death in our culture. But when we don't, when we face the fact that we're going to die like our dog, okay, Great things happen in our lives. Oh, such great things. I'm going to go over just three. First of all, we become more connected. I don't know if you've watched the show. You should, though. 127 Hours. It's actually like a movie, and it's about Aaron Ralston, this active outdoorsman and hiker. And he goes on a hike without telling anybody where he's going. Never do that. That's like rule one of hiking, tell somebody where you're going. And he goes into this ravine, and you can see pictures of it, and it's these straight vertical rock walls. And there's, he has an accident, and this boulder dislodges this ginormous boulder, and it pins and crushes his hand against the wall, and he's stuck there for 127 hours. And he spends those hours thinking, I'm going to die. And he has a cell phone with him, okay, but it's interesting, but he's not getting any signals. So he's stuck there thinking he's going to die. And then in an act of desperation, knowing he doesn't have many hours left, 
he goes, okay, I, I realized something. He, he could use the torque and the weight and the strength of his body to snap all the bones in his wrist. So he does that and completely severs all the bones, clean breaks. And then he takes a, you know, one of those multi-tools. <laughs> they're not made. They're not super sharp. He takes a multi-tool and literally saws his hand off. And he survives. It's not that bad. I mean, it's bad. He's got a really gnarly fake hand now, though, that's super cool, but at any rate. But he survives. He's got a family and everything now. But what was interesting to me is in the 127 hours when he thought he was going to die, he starts recording messages because his cell phone doesn't get signal, but he can record messages. And he records messages to all the people he loves and cares about, and he tells them how much and how deeply he appreciates them. That's what he does. He doesn't record any messages to his belongings. He doesn't say, hey, boat, I'm sure going to miss you and, and close. Take care of yourself, especially you sweatpants. You're my favorite, you know, stuff like that. He doesn't do that. How great is that? In his last moments, what he thought was his last moments, he wanted to make sure he connected to people. That's what happens with us. When we face our mortality, it's like the blinders go off our eyes and we see how precious the people are that God has brought into our life. And we just want to connect with them with any time that we have left. It is like an awakening. So as weird as this sounds, the knowledge of our own death is actually a gift that helps us have deeper relationships and connects us to people. Second thing, when you face your mortality, you become more grateful. Imagine this. Imagine I had a stack of cash that was $25,500, kind of a random amount, but that's a lot of money, and I just gave it to you. The first thing you think is, this is the best church ever. You should think that already, but in case you didn't, that would like get you over the top, right? And you'd think, oh, you'd start dreaming, look what I can do with $25,500. I can buy like a moderately priced car anymore, but I could buy a car or I could put a down payment on a house or I could pay for like half of a term of college for my kids. Oh my gosh, that's so expensive. But you could do some good things, okay? But now imagine I told you there was a catch. This $25,500 is all the money you're going to get for the rest of your life. Game changer, right? You think, oh my gosh, I'm not buying a car with this. I'm not paying for school. School schmool. You would think, I just have to, I have to be very careful what I spend this on because I'd probably just need to spend it on food. It would become so precious to you. Well, obviously, the average lifespan in the West right now is 25,500 hours. And when you know that, it doesn't seem 70 years, give or take a few years. And when you know that, suddenly you're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't want to waste a day. Those days are so precious, there's not that many of them. And especially if you realize and you count the days in your life and you think, I've already spent five or 10 or 20,000 days, okay? You don't want to waste a day. So we should celebrate Every day, every hour we have, we exist. We didn't have to, but we exist. And we're on this marble floating, flying through space. And we're not flying off the marble. And the marble's not flying off into nothingness. We're flying every day. If you're on a plane, you're actually flying twice. 
If you're jumping on a plane, you're flying three times. But okay, now we're getting into weird science stuff. But we get to wake up every day celebrating our existence on this miraculous planet flying through space. We get to wake up every day knowing God and being known by him. We get to wake up every day loving people and being loved by people. We get to work, laugh, eat, pray, have sex, dream, build things, get jobs, all this stuff and more. All this to say, instead of being depressed that you only have a limited amount of time left on this rock, instead wake up every day being enthralled with the fact that you had any time at all. Any time at all. Okay? So that makes you happy. That's an entryway into happiness too, okay? Now, the third thing I wanted to mention when we face our own mortality, we become more forgiving. Every year on Ash Wednesday, there's a, a holy day called Ash Wednesday, and it's a day when, um, that starts the season, the church season of Lent. And if you celebrate Ash Wednesday, you'll go to your priest, your pastor, and you'll have ash spread on you, smeared on your forehead in the shape of a cross, and then these words spoken over you, to dust you came from and to dust you shall return. We celebrated Ash Wednesday at this church last year. I just waited at the office in the morning at noon and after work, and I just smeared ash on people's faces. And some people wipe it off right away. Most people keep it on there all day long. And it's so great. It's such a powerful holy day because, first of all, it gets you to face your mortality. That's what the ash is all about and the, and the statement about dust. But then it also gets you excited for Easter, which comes after Lent and after Ash Wednesday, a day that we celebrate as Christians to know that, yes, we're going to die, but death doesn't get to bat last. And typically, Christian communities around here only celebrate Easter, and they forget all about Ash Wednesday. They're really excited to celebrate resurrection, but they forget what comes first. Death, okay? It's death and resurrection. Oh my goodness, it's such a powerful thing. And there's a church in San Francisco. I want to do this someday. I'm not sure I'll do it this year. There's a church in San Francisco that does the greatest thing on Ash Wednesday. They carry around a bucket of ash as a group of people, and they just give it to anybody that wants it on Ash Wednesday, just strangers on the street. And then they set up shop in this plaza in the Mission District of San Francisco. And when they set up shop, they're not only giving ash to anybody that comes by, they have two handwritten signs they bring to with them. And this will get to my point, okay? I'll put it up on the screen. The first sign just says this. Life is very, very, very short. And that's what Ash Wednesday gets you to accept. And then the second sign, they say this. More forgiveness. That's all it says on the sign. I love it because when we embrace our mortality, we naturally don't want to waste any of the days we have left. And one of the biggest waste of time is bitterness, a lack of forgiveness in our life. We will never spend a day in bitterness and go, what a great day that was. I woke up angry and I was angry and resentful all day. All I did was plan my revenge on the people that hurt me. And hopefully tonight I can go to bed dreaming of like ripping their fingernails off. Super day. I hope I have a lot of other days like this. No, bitterness is a complete waste of time. It doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, it robs us of doing things that would bring joy and life and sweetness into our existence, okay? So we've got to move towards forgiveness. Now, when I say that word, remember my teachings on forgiveness. To forgive someone doesn't mean you condone what they did. 
If they hurt you, you don't blow it off and go, oh, no big deal. It was okay. No, it wasn't okay. If it was okay, you wouldn't need to be forgiving them in the first place. What they did was wrong to you, and it will always be wrong. Forgiveness doesn't mean condoning someone's bad behavior towards you. It also doesn't mean reconciliation. Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean you have to be all buddy-buddy with them, okay? You can forgive someone and still have healthy boundaries and distance from them because that person might be dangerous or toxic to your life. Reconciliation involves both parties coming to meet in the middle. And if that other person doesn't own their stuff, then that trust that was violated can't be restored and reconciliation can't happen. It's great if it can. That's the goal, but it can't always happen because you can't control their behavior. So you don't have to reconcile. It's not a forced thing. And forgiveness isn't about warm fuzzies. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you have these warm, gushy, wet, wonderful emotions just come spilling out towards that person. I've forgiven plenty of people that the very thought of them just makes me kind of hurt again a little bit. I've forgiven them because this is what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means remembering this. You hurt me but I give up my right to hurt you back. The cycle of pain and revenge stops with me. That's what forgiveness is. It's a conscious choice on our part. And forgiveness, if you've never tried it, is hard. Super hard. Hardest thing we'll do as believers is forgiving other people, especially when they never apologize, because you don't have to have them apologize either to forgive them. It's so hard. And personally, I'm being honest with you right now. I'm a human being. I am struggling in this area right now. I have several people in my life I'm desperately trying to forgive and haven't quite got there. If I think of them, my first thought is it's not like I wish them dead. Well, no, not quite, okay? I don't wish them dead. I just wish them to suffer and be miserable, um, as miserable as they made me, maybe a little bit more so they know how evil they are, okay? That kind of thing. So I obviously haven't arrived at forgiveness yet, okay? Yay, all right? But I'm struggling, but I'm going to get there. And that means I forgive them on a daily basis. I even say it out loud. I forgive so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I say it out loud, and I have to forgive them over and over until one day it finally sticks. And that day is wonderful where I realize I don't have to forgive them anymore. I've done it. I no longer wish them harm. I no longer have the desire to take revenge on them. I'm even praying for them right now that God's favor and blessing will be on their life. And that helps me forgive them because it reminds me of how much God loves them too. But forgiveness is hard. Maybe you're in that place right now, if you're being honest. There might be some person that you're just furious at and you're deeply hurt on a level they probably don't even know and you're struggling, and I'm inviting you today, join me on the path of forgiveness. It's a slow walking path, but that's okay. We'll limp along together. But when we do, what we're doing is we're refusing to let bitterness waste our days. That's what we're doing. So we will all die like dogs. That doesn't sound great, but it is because in the meantime, facing that reality launches us into a fullness of life. So who knew that death could actually be a gift that helps us live better? But it is. Let me pray for us, and then I'll release us out into our rainy fall day together. 
God, doing good for others is such a wide entryway into happiness. So please, God, bring us opportunities to do that. Open our eyes and our ears to the ways we can do good to other people. And God, scary as it may be, and it is scary, please help us to face our own mortality and use the reality of our impending death as a gift that helps us to become truly and fully alive, to live in connection, to live in gratitude, and to live in forgiveness. We love you, God, and we celebrate this day with you. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. God bless you, and thanks for witnessing our baptisms today. Have a glorious day, and we'll see you here next Sunday for another installment out of this quirky book. All right? Have a fun day.